0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for December 22nd, 2016. The How Bad Could 2017 Be Anyway edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson of Face the Nation. You are here in the studio with me. John, hello. I am here. Hello. John is... um, prepping to head out so he's less formal today than he might be he's very casually dressed I'm although still just a hospital gown uh, a cardigan in front a of very a mr place. rogers that uh chime-like voice in the distance that was emily Vazlon, of course of the new york times magazine hello emily
1: hello david and hello john
0: you stayed at my house this week but i was not there did you have a I nice know. Time?
1: I had such a nice night. You know, there were girls baking in your house and I have no girls in my house and nobody but me bakes. It was very charming. I really enjoyed it.
0: Um, yeah. Hannah said you guys had a good time, but I was we did. meanwhile in New York. On this week's Gab Fest, it is our last regular episode of 2016. Next week, uh, you'll have our special conundrum show with a surprise guest. There's a surprise guest on the conundrum show. So listen for that. But we're going to use today's episode to look forward mostly to a very uncertain year ahead. First, just when you thought, oh, the world can't get really any worse. It got worse this week, the attack in Berlin, the assassination of the Russian ambassador to Turkey. What is the world that Donald Trump is about to step into as our president? Then we'll look at the domestic situation. What is it that Trump faces and is likely to do in On the domestic side, what is the three sided conflict between Trump, the congressional GOP, and the congressional Democrats going to look like? How is it going to play out? What issues are going to be top of mind and top of the agenda? Then we will look at what the hell is going on in North Carolina, what is happening in that state. That's not really a look forward to 2017. That's just a look at, wow, whoa, wow. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And for Slate Plus, is it okay for Ivanka to be the first lady? If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash gabfest plus. Events that have become gruesomely familiar. An ISIS sympathizer apparently drives a truck through a crowded street market in Berlin, killing 12 people. Another ISIS sympathizer probably assassinates the Russian ambassador to Turkey as a protest against the war in Syria. It was strange to me how ordinary all of this felt. There's another truck attack, another murder, more ISIS. Donald Trump is going to inherit a world that feels uglier than it has in a long time. Fortunately, when things get ugly, there's one man to call. That's Will Dobson, the chief international editor of NPR.
2: Our former colleague at Slate. Welcome back to the neighborhood, Will. Hi, David. It's good to be back. Although you never call me at nice times, good times. That's always when I always see the news get dark. I think, oh, David's going to call. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So- no
1: puppies and flowers for you. No.
0: How does it feel to be back in the old office? I mean, did you ever would it not office? the old office?
2: Yeah, i well I mean I worked in this office for about 1 week uh yeah. and so, you know, it but it you know, so I don't it's it's good. So I don't feel the the deep nostalgia from the old office, the old haunts. So um so yeah, but it's nice to be back. All right. Well, what was the purpose
0: of these two separate attacks?
2: Mm. Well, there you know, I think first of all you have to start with the fact that they are they're, they're completely distinct and separate attacks. Uh, In the case of Berlin, as ISIS's control of territory in the Middle East shrinks, what we know about past insurgencies in the world tells us that groups will typically change their tactics, and those tactics will mean lashing out in other places where they can strike their, their enemies, their opponents. And so in the case of Europe, as we know, it has welcomed, uh, in some cases, had no choice in receiving hundreds of thousands of migrants in recent years. And ISIS has taken advantage of that opportunity by having at least dozens of its own recruits in in this wave. Uh, it's not wholly unexpected that a possible recruit, in this case, this 24-year-old Tunisian suspect, could have struck. And at a moment that really puts Chancellor Merkel in a bind uh, because she has been the proponent of welcoming migrants into Germany more so than any other European leader and the repercussions are are, are certainly going to be felt going to 2017 in Germany and for Merkel in particular. She faces a re-election next year. In the case of Turkey, that attacker in this assassination, he told people right afterwards, you remember a He was clearly motivated, seemed to be motivated by war in Syria. There's nothing, no evidence right now to suggest that he has direct ties to ISIS. What the implications there are is, you know, directly for the relationship between Turkey and Russia. And they have moved very quickly to uh, send the message that it won't affect their relationship, that they will continue to move and work together, which is actually sort of a change. Only in recent times have they begun to cooperate and see sort of uh, mutual interests in the war in Syria.
0: John, do you think Trump's response to the attacks, first of all, what has it been? And ha- is it in any sense different from what Obama would do under the circumstances? Ha- is yeah, it-
3: um, remember when the the um, dumpsters exploded in New York, before any official said anything, Trump was saying, well, this is an act of terrorism. It's striking to um, put his instantaneous responses Um, and his um, predictive uh, self-congratulation on questions of terrorism against when there's no actual evidence. I mean, so he has a hunch and he goes with it. But he's right. He's been right. (laughs) He's been right. Absolutely. And and he's proud of the fact he's been right. And now put that against – the question of Russia hacking in the election, no matter the mountains of evidence, he doesn't want to believe it. And in this case, there's no evidence and he goes with his gut. So just as a kind of interesting juxtaposition to uh, to, to the other story we've been following up to that, if in fact what we're seeing in these kinds of attacks ratifies the idea I – mean, I mean you don't have to ratify it. ISIS is losing territory. They're going to ultimately lose in Mosul in a couple of months or maybe a little bit longer. But um, that's a super hard thing for – Uh, Donald Trump to fight for anybody to fight and his response has always been have big kinetic uh, attacks lots of uh, explosions but it's hard to kill an idea with explosions so he's basically I guess my point um, that I'm circling around here is that that the change in terrorism is happening at a time when his solutions for it at least at least based on what he says publicly are really fighting a very different kind of terrorism.
1: What about his call for, you know... Well, I mean, it's a little it's it's muddled at this point, but for banning people from countries, mostly Muslim countries where there's more of a record of terrorism. And then this whole idea of, quote, extreme vetting, which I don't really understand what that is, because I thought that the United States already did a lot of vetting.
2: Well, you're right. They already do. So
1: is there will is there more like other than just keeping people out of the United States if they come from certain countries, because that would be a shift. Are there more steps that the United States could take? Like what is Trump actually going to put into place to to embody these policies and is it a real shift or it will just will it just be calling by a different name something that we already do?
2: Yeah, it's hard to imagine having a more lengthy and exhaustive process for this, for someone to go through than we already have. I mean, at that at this point, given the num- the amount of time and the amount amount of investigation that goes into every single case, um, there really is not much more that one could do than go to a total ban. The you know, it's it's worth pointing out that as we know, Can- the Canadian government has been much more uh, welcoming of refugees in trying to make their determinations of. Who they should accept, they actually use U.S. data, Uh, because and so uh, Mm -hmm. for another government, uh, our vetting process is considered more than enough to make the decision on. It's just that their politics are very different than our own politics right now. So,
0: well, don't you think that doesn't this attack, particularly the Berlin attack, it serves the interests of ISIS presumably if they carry it out because it it you know kills people and and frightens and and discomfits the citizenry of Europe. But it also serves the right-wing parties that that condemn ISIS because it 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 promotes their idea that fear is everywhere, danger is everywhere. These people are getting us everywhere. Absolutely. And and gi- given that, or to, you can answer that part of it. But given that, does anyone have any effective strategies? If you are if you are Angela Merkel or you're a you're a, a kind of tolerant European who does want to want to allow a certain amount of immigration. Does anyone have any good ideas for lowering the temperature and making people less fearful? Are there any strategies that you've seen work over the years to make people feel this less rather than more?
2: right well on the solution side of it uh, you know Merkel's uh, Merkel I mean she's a good person to focus on this because she's the ultimate pragmatist you know we've seen now after this attack just uh, you know already this week that they put through tighter security measures greater surveillance powers uh, the uh, the approach in France has been very much to keep a state of emergency in a place and to allow them to use their full uh, law enforcement powers but the problem they face uh, w- where that much might have worked a decade ago or 15 years ago. The problem is that the numbers are so great and have swelled that their, you know, intelligence agencies are overwhelmed, uh, and sometimes act in a very ham-handed fashion. So, you know, you really have two, and you have two separate problems here. I mean, and, and, you know, we, one could debate which one is greater. Is that greater problem the possibility of ISIS recruits coming into Europe in this in this migrant wave, or is it actually the population you already have becoming more radicalized, which is a much larger percentage of of the population in any of these countries? So. And I think to t- take it one step further, why would you want to have a far right government in Europe if you're ISIS? I mean, you know, the theory would go that that then you could see more restrictive policies that would come, which would then only further alienate a large Muslim population and then add to greater recruits. So, you know, I think you know, for some security analysts, they see that as the long term strategy. Um, so it's it's a, a particularly naughty problem. The best, you know, that. You can see are very sort of low grassroots efforts to integrate these communities to uh, and, you know, sort of cross-cultural understanding. But, you know, it's they're they're very um, scattershot Um, just specifically to bring it
3: back to the incoming administration. That idea of baiting and one of the things that Henry Kissinger said in his interview with Jeffrey Goldberg was one of the big threats that he sees as a non-state actor, as he called it, but ISIS baiting Trump for this kind of overreaction. And that overreaction becomes a recruiting tool in the US and in all these other places. So just that dynamic you put Trump is moving hard on the re- refugee part, which is less of a present threat in the United States uh, than than this overreaction threat. So that'll be an interesting early test.
0: Well, you're, I want to actually make this bigger because we said we we're going to talk about sort of the world Trump inherits. and And so clearly there's you know terrible things happening in the middle east, Europe, but the one of the other big shifts is in an area of the world that you're very familiar with, which is China and East Asia. And in particular in the last few days Trump has signaled a, a much more aggressive anti-China policy than certainly the Obama administration or the Bush administration before that. What is the what is Trump trying to accomplish on China, as near as you can tell?
2: I think everybody is asking themselves that question. I mean, I think the Chinese are asking themselves that question. Our allies in Asia are asking that question. I think U.S. analysts don't, don't know that, you know, typically president-elects don't actually wade as much into foreign policy as president-elect Trump has during this period of time. Uh, generally, there's a sort of a respect for to let that administration finish out its policies and then actually take over when there's a handover. But, you know, he... Could also be viewing this as sort of a golden hour where he is able to send signals that could be more uh, incendiary after January 20th. So, you know, in essence, tweak the Chinese and say you're on notice and you're going to be dealing with someone who's unpredictable if you didn't already know that. If you don't get the U.S.-Chinese relationship right, it will likely overshadow everything else. So this is maybe the biggest challenge he'll face. Uh, We focus on the attacks, and rightly so. But in terms of the relationships among states, it's the relationship between Washington and Beijing that probably matters most.
1: What I don't understand about the – About China will is when you say get the relationship right, are you talking about the economics of it? Because what I just fundamentally don't grasp about the coziness that, um, Trump seems to be feeling towards Russia, or at least that's the perception he's generated versus the relative hostility to China are the trade implications. I mean, when you think about the world economy, isn't China and moving in the direction of the East much more valuable to the United States in terms of what we make and produce and um, how our economy could grow, then I just don't, I fundamentally don't grasp that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think that's right. I mean, the, the cost to Trump's economic agenda of sparking a trade war with China would be immense. And so there's a question as to whether or not he's, you know, I, I, I suppose you could say playing chicken with with the Chinese over, over something like that. I mean, but what has happened, and I think it's been even more surprising, because at least there was campaign rhetoric that said coming out of that that he was going to take a tough approach with China. And to and, you know, and to look back in history, you know, that's there's nothing remarkable about that. Uh, when you can campaign for president, generally Beijing is not your friend. Uh, you know, President Clinton, the first time, the butchers of Beijing. I mean, he spent the first several years of his administration trying to uh, walk back his. Uh, his promises to hold them accountable on their human rights abuses only to really ultimately cave completely and uh, and help usher their entry into the world trade organization. So um, in his in, in a subsequent term, so, you know, so, you know, it's, um, it, it's in that way, it's a cons- consistent, but what's different here, I think is that everyone actually believes that Donald Trump could mean it. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, but now, you know, what has happened in just this handful of weeks is is raise questions about the security and treaty relationships that we have and, and with our allies in the region who are watching how he interacts with Taiwan. I mean in Taiwan, I met with the president, I met with a number of other people in the foreign ministry, and I think um it's not something that they want to talk about, but I think the on the one hand, everyone believed that if you had the opportunity to have a conversation with the president-elect to to really deal such a blow to your international isolation, which is what Taiwan really feels, any Taiwanese president would take that call, which would would make that call. But on the flip side of it is a concern of well, to what degree is all of this just the the precursor to using us as a bargaining chip with with Beijing, or that they're part of the deal that could be struck and they don't want to be dealt? So right now, I mean, just going back to your question, Emily, I think just everything is on the table beyond the trade relationship.
0: Will to wrap this up. Um- is there anything that you see, you, you have 18 foreign correspondents for NPR, you are one of the people who are genuinely, you're looking around the world all the time. Is there anything that you see going into 2017
2: that should make people feel not terrible? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Um, is there anything that is going well? Or might go well? Like that, you think, oh, well, it could be better in 2017? I, well, I mean, you know, the, the, the problem with answering that question is there's more uncertainty. And I think that's what has people on edge is that there's more uncertainty than we've seen in a long, long time. Um, what is the relationship that seems like it's now on firmer ground than it was before? It's certainly not Indian Pakistan. You know, I mean, I get, he's uh, the, the president-elect has shown a great interest in working with the Japanese and they are a stalwart ally of the United States. So perhaps that's something that will make <laughs> it through the, the buzzsaw of of history. Um, everything is being tested.
0: Will Dobson is the chief international editor at NPR and longtime friend and dear former colleague. Will, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. This episode of the Gap Fest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says, moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting auraframes.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A U R A frames. Dot com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Donald Trump's election was affirmed by the Electoral College this week. He will be president of the United States with a Republican House and a Republican Senate and soon a conservative majority on Supreme Court, as well as Republican dominance in many state houses. There is a lot of uh, ambiguity, ambivalence, fear, confusion about what he and Republicans might do in, as as they take control of national government. Is it going to be like one of the purge movies or something? But we want to try to puzzle out what uh, what is scary, what isn't, and what is going to specifically happen on particular policies. So you have Obamacare, immigration, infrastructure, Medicare, Social Security, education reform, John. So there are lots of people ringing lots of alarm bells. What are the things that just Definitely, no one's going to bother with. Is there real? There's no chance they're going to take out Medicare, right? (laughs) Uh, Oh, how wrong you are, David! Oh my god!
3: I think the first, the first thing to that I think of when I think of what 2017 is going to be like is that there is going to be a a flood of activity for at least two reasons. Well, three reasons. One, Donald Trump promised a lot of that. Two, he and the, the Republican leaders in Congress. Believe that you have a limited window of time. This is not a new idea. Um, you got to move fast and do a lot of stuff. And three, at least at the beginning, he's running a de- – or he's appears to be setting up a decentralized administration. So why does that matter? Well, it means that, say, on something like the Affordable Care Act, there will be the action in Congress – which we'll all be watching. But also if you have an administration where all the cabinet secretaries have more autonomy than in the past, they can act and not have to run through run everything through the White House. So that means that the, at HHS, Tom Price, who is a, a strong opponent of the Affordable Care Act, has a lot of control over the, over the program because of the way it, the law was written. He can do lots and lots of things uh, that will be worth watching and worth covering at a very quick pace and not be slowed by the fact that maybe in a previous kind of white house would say look you know we're we're doing our work here, over here don't do something that distracts us from our main message so just multiply that across every agency the trump team wants to use that to their advantage which is essentially just overflow, just totally douse everybody in activity because that's your greatest moment of opportunity. And also because, you know, when there are 50 things happening, it's hard to mount a public opposition to 50 as opposed to if you had one like Obamacare and
0: then you can rally and, you know, as happened to the president in 2010. Emily, if you were a betting woman, which major policy shifts and legislative shifts do you think we'll see in the first first couple of months?
1: Well, they seem to be intent on repealing Obamacare. What that actually is going to mean if they Delay the repeal seems a lot less clear to me, but some symbolic big act around Obamacare. And then lowering taxes seems like the other strong common ground between Trump and this Republican Congress. So tax breaks that will largely benefit the wealthy seem absolutely Destined and some deregulation that unwinds the kinds of rules for businesses that may protect workers and consumers or do protect workers and consumers, but don't allow businesses to do everything they want to develop and grow. It seems like those are three obvious common areas. And then what might be more interesting will be the potential clashes between Trump's kind of populist agenda. And the Republican Party, which doesn't share those goals at all. So Trump's folks were floating the idea of a tariff, um, that could, you know, potentially set off real trade conflicts internationally. That's not something the republicans have on their agenda and this infrastructure idea which i don't i think it's so poorly defined that it's hard to talk about right now it seems to have this big privatization streak running through it but that's another one where if trump did what he's talking about you'd have a, a huge spending bill and a big increase in the deficit presumably again republicans on paper at least don't support those ideas
0: What happened to the deficit, John, (laughs) (laughs) as as a matter of concern?
3: Yeah, here's – I want to go back to your question about Medicare, which is tied into the idea of deficit. One thing to keep the eye on here, particularly with the Affordable Care Act, is there are things that can be done through – Reconciliation budget reconciliation in the in the Congress, which requires only a majority. It's not like, say, the the repeal of Dodd Frank or the or the legislation they're talking about, which basically lets businesses decide whether they want to be regulated under Dodd Frank or under a new set of rules. That'll require sixty votes in the Senate, and so Senate Democrats have an opportunity to block and slow things there. But with the Affordable Care Act and repealing. Chunks of it. That can be done through reconciliation, which they would be able to do basically, and the Democrats couldn't do anything to stop them. On the deficit question, this is why I said there will likely be something done with Medicare, I think. So Donald Trump actually doesn't – he doesn't really want to monkey with Medicare. Uh, He said it out loud and also he just thinks, based on my conversations with people who've talked to him about it, he thinks it's a marketing loser. If you think of everything in terms of what markets well and what's effective policy, think of the stuff that markets well. It doesn't market well to mess with Medicare, so let's not do it. He's not concerned about deficits. Paul Ryan does have a stated desire to reduce deficits. And in the past, people have said, well, he doesn't because his plans for reducing the deficit are implausible. Well, he's now got a Senate majority and a president who will sign. So the plausibility of the things he's suggesting, uh, things have become more plausible. So what Paul Ryan will do is say to Donald Trump, look, if you want to do this infrastructure spending, if you want to increase defense spending, for the stuff you want, let me do the stuff I want to do. And, and that's where uh, creating a uh, premium support system or vouchers or privatizing or whichever the, the, the characterizations you want to put it for Medicare come in. Because what he will say with the new director of the Office of Management and Budget, Mick Mulvaney, who is a Ryan mind meld um, type, is they'll say to Trump, if you want to do this stuff to create the space in the budget, you have to do all of the things we've been wanting to do for years to uh, get at the deficit question. Now – it, who knows if, if Trump will buy that? But the fact that Ryan has his guy at, at OMB suggests he's at least got somebody inside the organization who sees the, things the way he does. But in the Trump world, who knows what that means?
1: And speaking of all of those cabinet appointments, you know, the agencies, the enormous power of the federal government is something else that we need to be watching closely because there are a lot of things that – Trump And his appointees are going to be able to do without Congress, you know, executive orders, guidance letters. Uh, there are all kinds of tools that the administration has that they don't need Congress for. And they, you know, we saw this this week, President Obama issued a sweeping order that eliminates offshore drilling on many of the nation's waters, picking up on what looks like a solid provision of a 1953 law that had gotten used a little bit, but not that much. They're a very smart Republican lawyers will be working for the Trump administration will be looking for those kinds of opportunities.
0: I want to close. I, I think it, it may turn out that it's almost less interesting what Trump does or does not do than how he does it. What do you mean? That that the great <laughs> By danger. By the way, I
3: wouldn't say I agree
4: with you. What do you mean? <laughs> the great danger.
0: I think to me, the great, dang, the great danger of Trump in the long term is not necessarily any particular legislative action or even any – any bureaucratic action it is this weakening of of the political system itself the weakening of the norms of our of democracy the weakening the of the idea
1: that a legitimate opposition is possible right that you can have an opposition that that's what we have
0: and yeah. and that the idea that there are uh, i mean the thing that we're seeing in north carolina that we'll talk about in a minute is is that people have stopped tending to think about the system and how the system needs to be maintained and are st- instead thinking about the immediate, you know, possible gain that you can get. And Trump does that in, in extremists. And I just worry that what we'll become accustomed to is that there's no regular functioning political system and that people are sort of a- accommodate to that. And that's terrifying.
3: Can I add two more points on the norm front? There is the norms that Donald Trump will weaken or destroy. And then there will be the attractiveness of embracing him that will lead to... The self weakening of norms, so which is to say, Republicans in Congress, Um, we've already seen it happen on Russia. The the polls now show a uh, greater affection for Vladimir Putin, not based on anything Putin has done, but simply because it's now in your rooting interest to like Vladimir Putin because the incoming president has shown an affection for him. So imagine that with policy, because I'm going to get all the things I've been wanting to do. I'm going to allow him. Donald Trump to do things that I privately find deeply objectionable. This is basically what a lot of Republicans said to me during the campaign. So that's that's the way in which he invites people to weaken their own norms. And then the other norm is the norm of reaction, which is to say that the standards and values that people have who oppose Donald Trump will, in order to stop him, will perhaps cast those aside. In an effort to stop him, and so
0: there you have another another area in which people will be encouraged to weaken their norms. Republicans have a six time or have a six times more favorable view of Vladimir Putin than they do of Barack Obama,
1: and their favorable view of it's Vladimir Putin has gone shooting fucking up. Fucking shocking, right? right? It's gone. It's like shot right. up, right? And Vladimir.
0: and actually, there's another great one about trade too, which is that the Republicans' attitude support for free trade has plummeted. In the last few months, it has gone from uh, – f- f- for free trade has gone from, you know, like 60 percent to 30 ugh. percent. Anyway, ugh.
1: The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power
4: and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: North Carolina has undergone a tumultuous year. To tell the story briefly, By polling, this is a highly divided state, a purple state, but it's acting bloody red. Republicans have made it one of their great state-level successes, tremendous investment in local politics led by a man named Art Pope. We have talked about Art Pope and Jane Mayer's brilliant story about Art Pope in the past. Over the past decade, Republicans have won super majorities in the state legislature. They have then used that to create very gerrymandered political maps so that Republican representation in the uh, House of Representatives is ten, 10 of 13 representatives are Republican in the House, even though the state is is a 50-50 state. There have been major rollbacks of voting rights that have been targeted almost precision-like, with laser-like precision at African Americans. There has been, of course, this uh, obscene anti-gay and anti-trans law, HB2, and the, the Fight that's been over that. So, come November, Roy Cooper, a Democrat, narrowly defeated the incumbent Republican Governor Pat McCrory after a bitter fight in which McCrory used various chicanery to try to deny his own defeat. He has conceded, but he convened a special session of the legislature to pass a series of measures to defang the new Democratic governor. He wrenched control of the Board of Elections the majority party, the governor, the governor's party, and gave it, essentially gave permanent control of it to the GOP in election years. He reduced the governor's power to appoint his own cabinet. He slashed the number of state officials the governor controls. It's been ugly. Also, yesterday, the the legislature failed to overturn HB2, the the anti-trans bathroom law. Emily, Republicans say when it comes to the changes that, that the legislature passed that targeted Governor Cooper specifically, they say Democrats did a version of this three times before they're total hypocrites to complain about it this time. Isn't that the case? Well,
1: Democrats did do some lesser version of this before in the 1980s. So there was when Jim Hunt was elected governor, he fired like 160 people. And there was a lieutenant governor who was stripped of some of his powers. And then I'm leaving one more instance out. But none of those things add up to the much more sweeping changes that the North Carolina legislature just made. And I like the most important thing to keep an eye on in all of this is voting and control over the the election machinery. So the Republicans as you were talking about changed control of election boards, it's, it's sort of nominally bipartisan, but really um it gives Republicans control since they chair these local boards in even numbered years when elections actually take place. And then if you put that against the backdrop of the sweeping restrictions they placed on voting a couple of years ago, you see a real effort to maintain Republican and I would say white control of the state at the expense of Democratic and black voters. And because we've North Carolina still has some of the protections of the Voting Rights Act. And, you know, that surgical precision line you quoted came from a court opinion that struck down some of the restrictions the legislator placed. It it is both a a racial and a political party set of questions here. And so when you think of all of that together, it doesn't just seem like, you know, politics as usual or tit for tat. It looks like this more long term bid for maintaining power that has both a, a political party partisan dimension and also a racial dimension
0: john you would have thought that that a lot of the kind of poisonousness of national politics would be diminished and mitigated at the state level you wouldn't have thought there'd be so much of this kind of divisiveness at a state level in the state you really do have to govern i mean you can't not govern a state so as
1: opposed to the country you can which can not you govern, cannot the country, govern the, the country. possible
0: the country you cannot govern because there's always – there is a – there's a there's a huge infrastructure that will carry forth. But at the state, if you don't govern it, people get annoyed. Like that actually affects you day to day, whereas they don't – they're less annoyed when the, the country isn't governed. Why is there such a willingness now for – toxicity in local and state government where there didn't i think well, it used to be people have to live together in right. a way that
3: they don't really well there's from. a i i don't know that there hasn't there's been toxicity before i think the point you might be making is you now have a split you now have a democratic governor and republican legislature so why would the republican legislature greet the incoming governor with uh, a big punch in the face which which would presumably make it more difficult to get things done in the future. I think the calculation is if things don't get done in the future, guess who gets blamed? The governor. And so that's fine. We'll just reelect our our guy in there. It was going to be hard for him to to govern in in North Carolina anyway. I mean, I'm just – I was thinking for a moment there about Chris Christie with the Democratic legislature in New Jersey. Even though they had incredible battles in New Jersey, there was the – the premise of both what uh, Christie was trying to do in New Jersey and also then of his political um, pitch was bipartisanship is a good thing. Cooperation is a good thing and we disagree but like the goal is – there was a lot more chatter about even if it was totally phony, the idea of having a bipartisan consensus. That doesn't seem to be at play in North Carolina and I should say this isn't your point but more broadly, the the idea of making politics better and um, – and coming to common ground. We haven't, even just for the purposes of rhetorical, Donald Trump says unity, but barely. And he never talks about it in terms of like working. I, I look forward to reaching out to the Democrats and that kind of thing. It's just, it's fallen out of our national right. conversation. Right. right? He
1: means unity, unity under him, moving in his direction. There's, and and right. I think that's why right. some of us, I know this is me, are fixated on the situation in North Carolina because it looks like on a state level playing out in a even more brass knuckle way, this, this move in politics away from the idea of government functioning and public service and all the things you were just talking about reaching across the aisle toward just like naked holding on to power for power's sake.
3: It, it, it does remind me how far we've come from George W. Bush's election in 2000, when part of his selling point was that he worked with Bob Bullock, the democratic leader right. of, of uh, in Austin. And, Secondarily, when Bush lost the popular vote, they were uh, in a in a real panic to show that he was going to reach across the aisle. As Ron Brownstein pointed out, Bush's first statement as a president-elect was in the Texas legislature where he boasted about working with Democrats. That was his first signal. Donald Trump has had nine victory rallies where he talked about the how successful he was. Not a single rally or symbolic effort or event to reach out to the people who didn't vote for
0: him. Yeah, the, I'm beginning to think that actually – we would be a healthier country if we had single-party rule in all of our states. It would be better off that, that we just decide, okay, North Carolina, you're just a Republican state. And and so now Republicans, you control all of it and you bear the consequences. And you have actually have real debates within it because – the primary would become your your basic lens for analyzing things, and if either the state would prosper, it wouldn't prosper. Your your major business wouldn't be fucking the other party. Your major business would be like, okay, we got to run the state. We know we're going to be elected. We know we're going to control. it. You mean everything.
1: permanent but, single party? Like, you don't so mean the, like the, the parliamentary system? You mean yeah, permanent, yeah, basically,
0: so like- yeah, like California has, yeah. So it's like, wait, we know it's a democratic state. We know Democrats are going to control the legislature, or or Oregon, or something like that. We just don't need we don't need to to worry about all the rest. But of But we stuff. do
1: have this Let's in some just, states, like Kansas, for example, is bright red, and so Sam Brownback cut the state budget enormously and said that lower taxes were going to deliver all these things. Right. So then you're seeing the fruits of that labor. But you're saying that nonetheless, the yeah, Republicans are yeah, yeah. seeing. Stay in but
0: power. then he has the consequences. Yeah. Well. Well, the Republicans would stay in power, but there's there are consequences and there will be different kinds of Republicans would be voted in. Because, and Sam Brownback is – I think will go down as a disastrous governor for Kansas and Kansas knows this and, and they're going to elect a different sort of, of Republican. But why
1: is that better um, than having an option of a different party as well? Like why?
0: Because when you have two parties, apparently the the new game is your 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 purpose is just to murder the other party and blame them. I don't. This is a purely a. I don't actually believe this. This is sort of a a heuristic idea, which is is single party rule likely to produce better government for the for states than
1: well? What you're talking about is trying to eliminate
0: partisanship has become so toxic. Trying to
1: eliminate the poison of partisanship. Basically, you would be bringing within one party some of the same forces and tensions i mean it what's crazy is that we are living in such a partisan moment that that seems like a plausible idea
0: <laughs> right it's no it's it's like it's like well we should be like china we shouldn't have real right. elections or real parties it's just like that they're so effective no i don't actually believe it but i but part of me sort of wonders at the same time what is the self-respecting
3: i mean at some point the, the these why these big swings In public opinion, Uh, one thing that – two things interest me that have nothing to do with our current conversation. (laughs) One is presidents have a tough time moving public opinion. We've seen that. But Donald Trump is actually on what he's done for Vladimir Putin's relationship within the Republican Party. He's moved public opinion quite a big distance. So I wonder if we're going to see two different kinds of things. Donald Trump's ability to change public opinion within his own party rather dramatically on certain issues, trade, trade russia uh uh, certainly lots of norms that were once considered important has already happened in the in the party but then what's the actual ability to change the public mood people talk about him as a as a genius and no doubt he is in terms of controlling the news cycle but it is still a limited genius six and ten still say they don't think they're not proud to have him as their president uh i just wonder whether he'll be able to basically swing things at all outside of his own comfort zone the second question is if you're a partisan when you suddenly have new warm feelings about uh, Vladimir Putin and you're doing it just because you're the the person that's the lead of your party, so, I mean, shouldn't something kick in at some point or do you, or does that not happen? I mean, shouldn't you just say, huh, I wonder why I have these beliefs and why I've suddenly changed them? And that's true of both parties because now everything sorts so dramatically by partisanship. I just wonder how what how the how that thought if anybody has that thought process or whether they just come to new opinions and that's just that's but don't what they you think do. it's
1: important that something like Putin how much do Americans really have like a, a lot of people have such a strong fully developed you know detailed notion of Vladimir Putin in the world and his relationship to the United States and that's like a lot to have a really right, right? you're right. not it's, talking about it's, like it's, <laughs> right? yeah
2: yeah.
3: I, I think you've I think you're exactly right. I think it's basically like, you know, yeah, I thought this one thing. Now I think this other thing. It's like I don't really you know, do I get the mud flaps or not the mud flaps on the car? It's like I don't it's not really right. And a I trust me. Donald Trump. Um, so if he says and, Vladimir but, Putin
1: is OK, like maybe he's OK. Let's give it a shot. I mean, I've, there's so much like let's give change a chance going on in the Republican Party right now among the Republican mm-hmm. base. It seems like. They might be up for anything and then they might change their minds also in an instant in the other direction.
3: Right. Exactly. I don't care if they install Wi-Fi at the church I don't
4: attend.
0: <laughs> Let us go to cocktail chatter when you're roasting chestnuts uh, on an open fire and you're pondering uh, your, your holiday celebrations, John, and wherever you are for Christmas, what will you be boozing with and what will you be chattering to the dickersons about i will be boozing
3: with whatever is at hand and then my chatter is totally frivolous but um yeah the uh uh pointer put out the best media corrections of 2016 Ooh, that sounds um, so fun and there are some very amusing ones Uh, Here's one correction from May 10th, 2016. Because of an editing error, an article on Monday about a theological battle being fought by Muslim imams and scholars in the West against the Islamic State misstated the Snapchat handle used by Suhab Webb, one of Muslim leaders speaking out. It is Imam Suhab Webb, not Pimpin' for Paradise 786. (laughs) (laughs) Um, <laughs> um. All right, hold on. Here's another one: an article on March 20 about wave piloting in the Marshall Islands misstated the number of possible paths that could be navigated without instruments among the 34 islands. I remember and, this correction. Go ahead. Among the 34 islands and atolls of the Marshall Islands, it is 561, <laughs> not a trillion trillion. <laughs> Uh, All right, hold on one more. Um, Correction, Boris Johnson's award-winning limerick about the Turkish president referred to Erdogan as a wanker who performed a sex act with a goat. A previous version of this article included the prompt for the poetry contest, which included a different sex act, but also with a goat.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That was awesome, John. Emily, what will you be tippling with? And... What are you going to chatter about?
1: I am in just the wonkiest mood ever. I feel like every week I come up with something that is, like, not something anyone would really drink about. But I'm going to forge ahead anyway. The piece I read this week that really stuck with me is in Vox. It's by Sarah Cliff. It's called Why Obamacare Enrollees Voted for Trump. And Sarah went to Whitley County, Kentucky, and she interviewed people who are signing up for Obamacare and someone whose job it is to sign people up for Obamacare who seemed deeply committed to improving access to health care, all of whom were Trump voters, just didn't believe Trump would repeal Obamacare since it was a program that they deeply needed. And that in itself, I think, was really interesting and worth exploring. But the other thing that Sarah gets across really well are... The problems with Obamacare that make people frustrated with it, you know, the rising premiums and also the sense that Medicaid is actually better. So that poorer people who qualify for Medicaid are actually better off in the healthcare care game than these people with higher incomes who are having to purchase these um Plans on the market. It was just such a good constellation of the kinds of factors that politicians don't necessarily take into account. That people assume that you know Trump says he's going to repeal Obamacare, the voters believed him, but apparently they didn't. And the other thing I really like about the story is it's one of many that we should be doing right now in which we're laying the groundwork for coming back to people in a year or two or four and finding out how they fare and whether um, their expectations were realized or not.
0: My chatter, I have a double chatter. First, uh, the usual plots log rolling, um, which is that Atlas Obscura is doing a whole bunch of international trips in 2017, which are going to be amazing. We're taking groups to Bhutan and Morocco and the Amazon and Myanmar and underground paris and iceland and cuba and venice they're going to be all really unusual and special and wonderful strange trips me i am going to go we're doing a family trip to iceland so an atlas obscura trip to iceland designed for families with kids and i'm going to take my kids on that in the summer so if you're interested in that uh let me know check out atlas obscura my actual chatter was about it i got to actually pull this up for you john while we're talking a guy named uh, Roman Fedortsov. He's a deep sea fisherman who works on a trawler in the Barents Sea, according to the Moscow Times, and he is on Twitter, and he posts pictures of the creatures he pulls out of the ocean, and it just makes you think, like, there's something crazy going on in the world. These creatures are just wrong. There are (laughs) teeth where there should not be teeth. There are legs where there should not be legs. There are eyes where there shouldn't be eyes. The eyes are too big. They're too small. Maybe there are no eyes at all. Like there are wings there. There, it's just it's it's terrifying. I'm. About it's to
3: like sh- Mr. Potato Head of the deep sea.
0: Yeah. Here, John. Look. Take a look at this one. Look Ooh. at that. look at these guys. Oh my God. Look and at are, that.
3: Is this just the 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 bounty and weirdness of nature, or these are all uh, these are mutants?
0: No, it's just the bounty and weirdness of nature. Yeah. Look at that one. You can't even tell what that thing is. Yeah. Yeah. These are worth looking at
3: well before
0: you have this to. This one eat. looks like an armadillo with a giant eye. Yeah. But uh, but it, why is it under the sea? That one has wings and glowing green eyes. Am I lying? It literally no, no, has no, wings. These pictures are worth and glowing lo- these, green these, eyes.
3: These pictures are worth looking at. They look like some CGI practice session with um
0: Gone wrong. Look how yeah. many legs that thing has. Yeah. You shouldn't have that many legs. It Nothing is, should have that many legs.
3: It is true and you know uh or that thing? What is it? That it looks like a like um a shiitake mushroom gone terribly wrong. Uh come on. You know the come National on. Geographic every once it's in a while will do those beautiful pictures of, you know, crazy things found 82 miles under the uh these surface. These are not, these are actually Pokémon. <laughs> these aren't even these
0: aren't even real.
3: They're Pokémon. what the the verisimilitude of the The Twitter pictures, like, makes it seem even more otherworldly. I don't think that that sentence actually scans, but you know what I'm saying? It's like the fact that he's taking it with his own, like, iPhone camera makes it seem more otherworldly than if it were in some beautifully uh, photographed
0: spread in um, National Geographic or Atlas Obscura. I saw this on Gizmodo. We'll have a link to that. But the lesson is avoid the ocean if you do not go in the ocean. Well, that's Whatever you are doing, do not Go in the ocean.
3: Well, I, I, I mean, that's safe to say about it. Just in general, that's a norm we need to cling to.
0: Donald Trump is, is shattering that norm, too. He's like, go uh, in the ocean.
3: Hey, can I log roll, too? Uh, because in addition to um, uh, our upcoming Conundrum show, uh, there's a tradition at Face the Nation now in its second year, which is an end-of-the-year conversation with Stephen Colbert,
0: which will be on Christmas Day. So set your um, DVRs. Ooh, I will set my DVR. Excellent. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our entire roster of podcasts is at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Facebook is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Twitter, of course, is at SlateGabFest. And email is GabFest at Slate.com. Please subscribe in iTunes and leave a comment and rating. It really helps us if you do that. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you at the Conundrum Show next week.
3: Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
4: Grill patio sunset—hard to get better than that, unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time! So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you.
2: I could stay here forever.
4: Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C.,